Hi, Heather. How's it going? Can you hear me? Hello. Hey, can you hear me? Hello. One second. Oh, Hello. Hey, can you hear me now? Oh, yes, I can. Okay, cool. Sorry about that. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Well, thanks again for uh, taking the time to do the interview today. Uh, very excited about it. Uh, so, a little bit of background on the podcast and how we're going, how we kind of plan to do things. Uh, we haven't launched yet. We plan to launch in the next couple of weeks. Uh, and kind of the style of it is, if you think of like the NPR style podcast, where there's like kind of a narrative for each episode, kind of like a storyline, and then we interweave in. Uh, snippets from interviews here and there so with that kind of, you can keep that in mind and like if you ever kind of stumble over saying anything feel free to like kind of pause and like let me know like oh let me restate something and we're happy to kind of cut okay. it back together uh, sure. yeah so with that uh, why don't you start out uh, can you introduce yourself just my name you mean or actually like you just you and a little bit about kind of what you do and everything what do you have to yeah. currently what do you have to right now currently so that's a very long answer, yeah. though. I think <laughs> even, you even currently, sure. yeah, I've seen yeah, lots of things. Say else. sort of a brief description of who I am. Yeah, let's or, start there. Okay, uh, I'm Heather Dewey Hagborg. I'm an artist and an educator. I work with biotechnologies uh, and artistic research, and I teach at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Cool, awesome. So before you got into kind of these biohacking-related artistic works. Uh, what was a bit of your background? Sure, yeah. So I uh, went to a very interdisciplinary undergraduate college called Bennington College where I studied a broad spectrum of things ranging from uh, visual art to sound, philosophy, and computer science. And that got me really interested in thinking about machine learning algorithms and thinking about kind of the boundary between the natural and the artificial and how that was breaking down or changing in contemporary culture. And so for about 10 years, I worked on art that was at the intersection of the, the visual and sound and computer science. And... Um, that led me into an interest in surveillance uh, because surveillance technologies were a place where so many of these machine algorithms were being utilized or instrumentalized even. And that surveillance threat is eventually what led me to thinking about the body and thinking about the vulnerability of our genetic information. Cool. Uh, so then, so that sounds like it was kind of, kind of led you to the Stranger Visions project, right? Kind of the surveillance That's right. things. Okay. Uh, so with that, how did you end up, so you came up with the idea that you want to do some sort of art project around surveillance, right? Related to biology. Um, so I was already working with, uh, facial recognition and speech recognition in mm -hmm. regard to surveillance technologies, mm -hmm. thinking about that kind of visibility. And then one day I was sitting in a therapy session and I was staring at this print on the wall and I noticed that the glass covering the print was cracked and there was this hair stuck in that crack. 
And so I just kind of sat there for the hour staring at this hair and I began wondering about that person and all the kind of detective stories that I <laughs> loved reading as a child and forensic shows on television start running through my head. And I imagine that I actually pluck the hair out and extract the DNA <laughs> and analyze it to try to figure out who it is. Now, at that point, I didn't have any kind of specialized knowledge about what that process might look like. Mm -hmm. I just knew that there was a history of artists working with biology as a medium, and I knew that there was something called DIY bio, and that there was a community lab in Brooklyn. I was sort of vaguely aware of those things and thought, well, maybe something like that would actually be possible. Mm -hmm. And so then, after I left, I just kept thinking about it, and I couldn't get the idea out of my head. <laughs> So then what were those next steps that you took to actually lead you to know that you could actually do it? So the next step was really um, signing up for a biotech crash course at GenSpace. GenSpace is a community laboratory in downtown Brooklyn where anyone can come in and take a class, anyone can propose a project and become a member and really learn hands-on about the tools of molecular biology. Mm -hmm. So I signed up for this crash course and I learned how to extract DNA, how to amplify it, analyze it and sort of begin to get my hands dirty with this stuff. And then, uh, so I took the class with Dr. Ellen Jorgensen, and afterward I started talking to her about my project and asked, you know, well, what does she think? Does she think it might be possible? Mm -hmm. And she's saying like, well, I, I don't know, maybe we could try. <laughs> yeah. Nice. And so then um, I proposed my project to the board there, and uh, Ellen and also Dr. Oliver Medvedek were advisors and mentors to me on the project as I spent uh, the next year really experimenting and, and really trying and failing for a long time in the lab mm -hmm. to get any kind of uh, results, mm -hmm. but then eventually um, eventually making progress. Cool. So what could you walk us through kind of like the high level steps that you took in order to like when you collected the DNA samples out kind of out in the public spaces, where did, how did you go from collecting something out in the public and actually converting it into something you could visualize and kind of create a sculpture from? Yeah, sure. So um, the process really consists, I mean, once I got the process down, I should say, because there was this yeah. long process of learning mm -hmm. that preceded my ability to really make the project. And I always kind of view Stranger Visions as an ongoing work in progress because I never really felt like I finished it. It wasn't like, like there's always more that could be done. Mm -hmm. There's always more sort of traits that could be looked at and yeah. more points in the genome that could be examined. And so much like biotechnology itself, it's an ongoing process, right? It's mm -hmm. not at all solved or finished. It's not complete. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the process is uh, collecting a sample. Let's say you collect a cigarette butt. Take it back to the lab as soon as possible because you want the sample to be fresh. Mm -hmm. um, and then you would cut a little piece of the cigarette butt, butt off, uh, cut that into smaller pieces. And then I used a kit that's available. Anyone can buy it. It's called a DNA investigator kit. Uh, it's, available, it's available from a biotech supplier called Kyogen. And they make a lot of different biotech kits. And um, so then you just walk through a protocol. And um, following a protocol is a lot like following a recipe. You just have to be very precise about it. So you pipette small amounts of liquid from one tube to another, incubate things for different times, shake them, these kinds of things. At the end of that process, hopefully, you have purified DNA. Now, the purified DNA can at that point um, be quantified if you have the ability to quantify it and see how much DNA you actually got. In a community lab setting, we didn't have that 
capacity. So at that point, I would do a polymerase chain reaction. So I would amplify a subsection of that DNA and then run it through a gel, gel electrophoresis system, to see if I got a result. And so the first thing I would look at would be mitochondrial DNA, mm -hmm. and that would give me a sense of, first of all, whether the DNA extraction worked at all, uh, in the least respect, because uh, mitochondrial DNA is the easiest thing to extract and amplify from forensic samples, because there's, there's more of it, and it lasts longer. And so it's easier to get a mitochondrial uh, DNA result than any of the other kinds of traits I might want to look at. Mm -hmm. So I would start with the mitochondrial DNA and run that through a gel, and then if it looked like I got a result, I would send that off for sequencing. And so that would be the first step. And then I started going through a list of other traits of interest. So basically, I compiled from looking through 23andMe, looking at the kind of traits that they profiled, and looking through Snipedia, which is like the Wikipedia of single nucleotide polymorphisms. Mm -hmm. I compiled this list of regions of interest that correlate specific uh, genetic loci with um, specific kind of traits related to appearance in particular, or anything that could be kind of conceived as relating to appearance. So measures of obesity, for example, would get drawn into that. So looking at ancestry, looking at eye color, freckling, complexion, um, a handful of facial traits, gender, biological sex, really, um, and, and measures of obesity or uh, tendency to be overweight, body mass index measures. And so I would take these different uh, traits and I sort of would go through one by one. And for each of these traits, I really had to develop the, the um, not develop the protocol, but I had to develop the primers for many of these things myself mm -hmm. because I was sort of attempting to reverse engineer a genome-wide association study, or I was trying to sort of turn what would have been profiled all at once, you know, so many of the studies I was drawing on utilize uh, these microarrays, which examine thousands of different points on the genome all at once, mm -hmm. but I could only look at basically one region <laughs> at a time. Yeah. So I had to do an you know an entire experiment, like a whole day or even more than a day's work, just to examine one trait. Mm -hmm. So it was very slow, and at the point at which the project became public, I still felt like I was not even a quarter of the way into <laughs> what I wanted to yeah. learn. You know, it was very preliminary. I was just looking at ancestry, just uh, mitochondrial DNA ancestry, so just the a tiniest bit of ancestry, and looking at eye color and one one preliminary study that had looked at nose width and uh, one one trait um, related to tendency to be overweight and sex. And so that was it, really, at the point at which the project started to get lots of media attention, and then at that point, it kind of um, grew out of my control, in <laughs> a sense. Um, it took on a life of its own. <laughs> Could you describe more of how it took on a life of its own there? Sure, yes. So I had a work-in-progress exhibit at Clock Tower Gallery in New York City, and at that point, the Wall Street Journal came and interviewed me about mm -hmm. the project. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not exactly sure how they found out about it. I, now that I think about it, yeah. but they came, and so they published it uh, right on the front page of the Metro section, and at that point, all of these other media outlets started contacting me, mm -hmm. and then for at least the next year, my phone was ringing off the hook, my inbox was full, 
of requests from the media, but also of comments from the public, all kinds of things. I mean, so it just sort of, it completely swamped me and it absorbed all of the time that I would have spent maybe further developing the project, <laughs> got channeled to talking about the project and then it really transformed. So then it became about being a media intervention and sort of bringing attention to these issues of surveillance around biotechnology and really exploring what that meant in a very public way and sort of learning on the job, I would say, because I wasn't prepared at all for that to happen. Okay, so uh, yeah, because I was looking up kind of the ba the background of this project, I remember seeing you talk a lot about how uh, this type of thing, like this DIY nature of the way you did this is kind of something you want to highlight, like the ethical questions that people are asking, like that's what you mm -hmm. want to highlight with the the artist the artistic project uh, is that so you mentioned that that's something that kind of came out more of the media attention or is that something you went into it thinking this is what you want to become well the project was always meant to call attention to okay. new forms of visibility and surveillance issues mm -hmm. um i didn't necessarily plan it as like a spectacle okay. uh, that yeah. was not my interest in art making has always been about sort of research questions and figuring out what is the what are the limits of what's possible and thinkable and you know just sort of becoming obsessed with an idea and then seeing where it takes me mm -hmm. um it wasn't necessarily meant to be tactical i mean i had some ideas that people might be interested in the idea but i'd also applied with for various um grants and things you know mm -hmm. residencies and so forth with the project and been rejected so i didn't necessarily think it was going to be hugely successful <laughs> um i was i got an i-beam residency with the with the project proposal and that was really the first the first step but before that i had been rejected numerous times okay. from other things yeah so Yes, it was a surprise. <laughs> yeah. a happy surprise? <laughs> Mostly a happy surprise. Um, I mean, you know, really that was a, such a learning process. Yeah. So at first I would read all of the comments on every article and get really, yeah. you know, involved with all of the emails and all of these things. Um, actually, at, when I first uh, started getting the media attention, I had a CV up on my website that still had my mailing address on it. So uh, people even sent, sent me physical mail, oh, which was kind of creepy. Yeah. And so then immediately I took my address <laughs> down off my website. I didn't want anyone showing up. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> um, but, you know, so it was amazing, but then it was also, it just was completely overwhelming. Yeah. And not easy it was not mm -hmm. an easy time because it's because it wasn't all celebratory you know yeah. it was lots lots of criticism mm -hmm. yeah that's the nature of these things uh so going back yeah. to the project kind of the process you did uh how many times like how long were you just failing at kind of the process before it finally actually worked well <laughs> so ellen, ellen uh and i was just hanging out with Ellen the other day and we were remembering mm -hmm. that when I first started I really I, I thought that I knew how to pipette but I hadn't even gotten <laughs> the basic pipetting technique down and so I had probably been experimenting every day for a week mm -hmm. and then I was telling Ellen I'm not getting any results and she hauled up my uh, polymerase chain reaction tubes the tubes mm -hmm. that the experiments take place in mm -hmm. and they were they were much more full than they should be <laughs> and Ellen's uh -huh. like what is in here <laughs> how big is this experiment <laughs> and I was like uh oh <laughs> backtracked it and you know relearn the most basic technique yeah. so once I got the pipetting down then I started to make a bit more progress and then 
once I got that specialized DNA investigator kit, that also helped a lot because before that I was following more general kind of DNA extraction protocols. So that was probably a couple months worth of experimenting before getting it down. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And then you mentioned that you designed those primers yourself for a lot of that. How was, what was the process <laughs> of designing those? Oh, my God. So primer design is another um, specialized kind of area of expertise. Mm-hmm. Many, many molecular biologists I speak to tell me that it's very easy. But in my experience, it was quite challenging to get primers that would actually work, mm-hmm. especially because oftentimes... Um, Oftentimes what will happen is scientists will borrow primers that are already published in people's papers. So Mm -hmm. if someone was looking at a specific region, especially um, in the earlier days of genetic research, they would list in their their paper the primers that they used to to do the PCR to amplify the specific region. Mm -hmm. But with these microarrays, it's kind of it's a it's a totally different process. So the primers are often not public at all. Oftentimes, people aren't even involved in designing primers in the least. And so, you know, I would email the scientists and they would say, you know, well, we didn't use those in in this study, but you can use this tool to design them. And and so um, I used some online tools to try to design primers for the regions of interest. But, you know, I would have to design, I would design maybe five different versions of the primer and then test them all and see which one was giving the best results. And sometimes none of them would give a good result. And so those traits that I ended up with, that I was talking about, um, the sort of list of the five things that I found in the beginning were the ones that were working the best. And then there were many other ones that I was still trying to get to work, hadn't identified the primer successfully yet. So how many uh, regions did you try isolating? Like, did you ideally want to isolate that uh, versus how many did you actually, were you able to isolate in the end? So I had a list of about 40 different regions that I was interested in. Mm -hmm. I probably had started work on 10 of those. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also I was was also trying to figure out how I could get access to uh, microarray technology so that I could really look at all those things at once. But it was too expensive. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so this is one of those things. I mean, this project was made on almost no budget whatsoever. I mean, really, like zero budget. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everything was done as cheaply as possible. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of the opposite of these science art projects that are like these huge spectacles with lots of funding <laughs> from all these organizations. This was like, I had $5,000 from i and that was paying yeah. my rent. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It was in a very, very minimal situation. Yeah. And um, it's in retrospect, it's amazing that I <laughs> was able to do as much as I was, given yeah. that it's all done um, almost for free using donated <laughs> resources from GenSpace and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had had it in my mind that maybe I could do the microarrays. And so a big reason to do the microarray, from my perspective, was to get a better look at ancestry, mm-hmm. um, or at least to get a a look at, how would, how would I put this? Um, I wanted to replicate some of the studies that I was seeing that I thought were going to be the most used in this field of forensic phenotyping, mm-hmm. uh, which looked at what's called biogeographical ancestry. So that's 
ancestry inferred from looking at all of these little variations across the genome. So not just looking at the Y chromosome, not just looking at mitochondrial DNA, but looking at all of these kind of markers all over the place. And so obviously to look at lots of markers all over the place, I would have to do a lot of PCR, <laughs> you know, and have access to a microarray. So that was one of the things that I saw was was sort of in the speculative future of this technology that I couldn't get access to with my limited resources. Yeah. So yeah. So you're mentioning kind of like the low budget and the low kind of cost you had to target for all this. Uh, do you think that helped shape the project in a in like a I wouldn't say positive. Like, did it help shape the project kind of to bring its point across that like you're able to do it on such a low budget? Yeah, I do think that that I think that the accessibility of what I was able to achieve was really key, right? Because it points out that not just that fancy labs have access to this stuff, but that anyone can pick up your genetic material mm -hmm. and get some sense of you just in their kitchen even. And that's a really big insight. I mean, mm -hmm. and that's really the direction that things are, are going, mm -hmm. radically shifting in this direction, I would say. I mean, the accessibility, the lowering cost, I think it's in the very near future that we'll have paternity tests that you can pick up at the drugstore, yeah. just like a pregnancy test, right, and get mm -hmm. immediate results. And these are going to really radically shift the way we think about family and friendship and all kinds of things that we're hardly even beginning to think about. So do you think, like with all that you're just talking about, kind of the accessibility and all that, do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? Do you have a viewpoint on that? Oh, <laughs> these things are always a bit of a bit of good and a bit of troubling, right? Mm -hmm. So yes, there's many good things that can come out of these technologies without question. Mm -hmm. And those get widely discussed, I think, in the media and in discourses around the biomedical industry and healthcare and all of this. Mm -hmm. I think we're, you know, <sighs> we are um, inundated with the kind of positive discourse of healthcare. Um, what I think we don't hear so much are sort of questionings and critique of what we might lose as we gain in this sort of abstracted idea of health. I mean, first of all, what is health? Who gets to decide sort of what the norm is that we're aspiring to? That's one big question I have <laughs> for yeah. the healthcare industry. Uh, but then also, what are we losing? I mean, what, what happens when it's so easy to know, let's say, who the father is of a child. What does that change? I mean, I don't think that we have answers to these questions yet, but there are important things to think about. Yeah, definitely. Huh. I mean, what happens when you can't have any genetic secrets? I mean, we don't even yeah. know, most people don't even know what their genome says right now or how it could be interpreted. They don't even know their own genetic data. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea that a stranger like me could know more about you genetically than your doctor does is pretty huge yeah that's crazy <laughs> huh so then okay yeah so this all kind of came up from the perspective of like surveillance way back that's where it started and yeah. then it took me in some different directions so um as i began working on the project as i began uh, developing the software side of it. So I realized I was talk talking you through the lab side, but I never even brought you into the software side. Yeah. Um, so the software side, so I, I have a some background in computer science mm -hmm. and I've worked as a programmer and done a lot of that kind of software work. And so th on that end, what I was doing was basically taking the profile that I developed in the lab 
um, taking in that information and then using it to parameterize a 3D model of a face. Mm -hmm. So I was able to find this computational model from an open source um, platform that was called Basil Morphface. And so this morphable model I kind of took and manipulated and retrained a bit in terms of the machine learning side of it and then sort of appropriated it for my own artistic purposes. And so that allowed me to put in a parameter, let's say blue eyes and output a 3D model that would have blue eyes. Mm -hmm. um, or more, um, more interestingly and more provocatively and more troublingly put in things like gender or race and let's see, or ancestry as it's uh, usually called in, in these kinds of fields, but ancestry becomes sort of a, a shortcut term for race. And so these, uh, so then I could output a 3D model and print that in uh, using 3D printers, print it in full color, life size and exhibit those. And so what I realized in, in sort of working with these morphable models and working with this parameterization was that what was happening here was essentially creating a stereotype, stereotyped idea of what a certain ancestry or a certain gender might look like, mm -hmm. and then kind of embodying that in a finalized face. And so for each face that I created, I would generate maybe five different versions of it, and then choose the singular face that I thought was the most interesting, um, that sort of using my artistic judgment. Mm -hmm. Uh, but where this becomes really troubling, I mean, I think it's troubling enough sort of a, yeah. as an art project, but where it's really troubling is that now this is a service being offered to the police. Mm -hmm. So in the point at which I started this research, it was still somewhat speculative. I was seeing the research being published. There, It wasn't yet sort of embodied in a company. Um, it was still a little bit anticipatory. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, last year, a company called Parabon Nanolabs launched a product called Snapshot that claims to generate these kind of DNA-based portraits and offer that as a service to police around the United States. So this is something that's now being purchased daily by different police uh, departments around the country. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. Huh. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, so jumping a bit back to, you're talking about how you did a lot of the machine learning work there, uh, kind of to mm -hmm. build this, the, these 3D models, uh, like including the computer science side as well as like the biology side. What, what aspects of the project did you do yourself versus what did you outsource to other like services that you could pay for or whatever? Oh, nothing was outsourced. Okay. Well, um, so you, but you mentioned that you did, uh, 23andMe did the sequencing aspect of it. No. Oh, okay. I see what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, that kind of Yes. Um, so 23andMe. No, I, I tried. If I had been able to hack, I've tried to hack 23andMe and, <laughs> and often fail. I mean, I've sent them all variety of different samples and mm -hmm. they generally fail quality control. <laughs> um, that would have been great because then I would have the whole microarray result right oh, there. Yes, yes. Um, no, I would after the polymerase chain reaction, I would send it to send it to a company called GeneWiz that does okay. you know old old school. Sanger sequencing. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. And that was basically the only thing that you didn't do yourself? Yes, other than uh, sort of appropriating this underlying mathematical model from uh, yeah. Basil Morphase mm -hmm. and then sort of pushing it and retraining it a bit. Cool. 
Uh, so going a bit back to like the early days of this. Oh, and uh, I guess I guess I should would also say I sorry I think some of this stuff I I don't even think of. Yeah, yeah, but also you know I would um not do the 3D printing myself either. I mean, uh, I would yeah. send the model to a lab that would mm-hmm. do the 3D printing for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely like a, a great area in terms of like, what did you do yourself versus outsource? Because it's all, it's all very blurry. <laughs> 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 that's what, that's what I think you still like. Uh, so like on that, on that note, the like, uh, why did you kind of focus on doing as much of it yourself as possible? Because my labor is free. <laughs> okay, that's a good point. <laughs> that's a good I mean, point. if you have no budget, you can't really pay people to do things. Mm-hmm. I mean, also, that's that's sort of a sarcastic answer, yeah. I guess. But, you know, from a research side of things, being engaged materially with the subject that you're studying is just totally invaluable. I mean, I'm I'm not someone, generally speaking, who likes to hire other people to do my work for me i mean i I like to be engaged with that material because i feel like you learn from the material so through the act of extracting the dna and then seeing how difficult it is and seeing how subjective it is to interpret it i learn such a great deal about dna as a medium and that then inspired the follow-up project that i worked on called invisible which was a dna cover-up spray because that project was meant to call attention to really this subjectivity and to the flaws and bias and kind of lack of authority mm-hmm. of DNA, yeah. DNA evidence. Mm-hmm. We view it as this gold standard, but really it's also, it has its own fallibilities. And those only became evident to me through the laboratory practice. So I wouldn't give that up. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, so going kind of back to the early stage of this, uh, before your biohacker crash course with Alan at Genspace, mm-hmm. what was your level of kind of biology, technical bil- ability and knowledge? Oh, wow. Yes. I mean, so minimal. You know, I had high school biology, which I can barely remember, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, actually, this is a funny story. So when I was in uh, junior high, um we were studying, we were supposed to be studying biology, you know, as part of, I think our whole year was sort of, sort of supposed to be about biology, and we got our biology textbook at the beginning of the year, and I looked through it, and I was so excited to see the unit about evolution coming up, like, midway through the year, and once we finally got to that part of the textbook, the teacher went to the front of the classroom and, and stopped and said to everyone, we're not going to be covering this unit because I don't believe in evolution. Oh, jeez. <laughs> um, it was so distressing. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that I, I did later get a chance to study evolution in college, so I did take a class on biodiversity and evolution in college. And then I sort of, you know, I got into thinking more about DNA and genetics from the computer science side of things. So I was very interested in artificial life. And that probably is what led into the the more hands-on stuff because I was already thinking about genetic algorithms, for example. (laughs) But I had no hands-on training. I mean, like I said, I'd never pipetted before I took the the crash course. Mm -hmm. I'd never studied molecular biology. I just had a very basic kind of background. And then, you know, some some college-level kind of studies of evolution. Okay. So kind of thinking back to your school days, uh, did you have an interest in science at all? Which school day? Which, um, yeah, I get like, are you thinking primary mm, school? or 
I mean, okay, so this is what I would say. Mm -hmm. I would say that as a kid, I had a lot of interest in science, um, among many other things. So I always was interested in art, but I also was interested in science and reading and writing and all of it. Um, When I got into high school, I think I had some very bad science teachers Mm -hmm. who really shut down my interest in science. Um, Not including, my high school biology teacher actually was, was very cool, but Somehow in high school, science became other to me. It became yeah. something that, along with math, just became, I don't know if it's gendered or what, but it just became something that I no longer felt like was my thing. And my thing instead was really the art community. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until college that that uh, broke down again for me and that I was able to reconnect to my interests and my previous interests in science and excitement about scientific questions. Yeah, cool. So would you consider yourself now more an artist or kind of a very good mix of both, so like our art versus science? What do you, what do you think? <laughs> um, well, first of all, I would say I love it when people try, don't try to categorize you. I think it's always nice when we can mm-hmm. avoid categorization. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would, I would think of myself as an artist first, and then I would say I'm an amateur biohacker also. Cool. Yeah. Uh, so thinking back to your time at GenSpace and like doing the project there, well, I guess first, uh, did you do any of this hands-on work outside of GenSpace? Sure, yeah. So um, let's see. I worked at GenSpace for about a year, and then I started a PhD mm-hmm. in, in electronic arts at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Mm-hmm. And I uh, worked with Dr. Eric Rutledge in the biology department there. He let me, very graciously, let me come into his lab and mentored me as well. And so then Chapter 2 of Stranger Visions really took place more at Rensselaer Polytechnic. Okay. And so then I you know, continued developing stuff and... Um, got feedback from Eric about, you know, how to improve things and that, that, that variety. Um, and then uh, when I got hired at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago two years ago in the Art and Technology Studies Department, I developed my own lab. <laughs> so building on the template of GenSpace and yeah. with many emails to Ellen <laughs> for advice, uh, I took an empty room at the Art Institute and began filling it with molecular biology equipment. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, would you say that you're kind of the latest at the Art Institute, the lab you've created for yourself, is that more advanced or less advanced than GenSpace in terms of equipment? It's a little bit different. I mean, it's yeah. it's GenSpace has a broader focus. Uh-huh. So I might have one or two things that GenSpace doesn't have that are more applicable to the DNA research I've been doing. Mm-hmm. So like quantification, for example, yeah. I knew I, I really needed tools for doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think through working in the biology lab at Rensselaer Polytechnic, mm-hmm. I learned some new tools that weren't available at GenSpace, especially at that time. Mm-hmm. And so then I, I drew some of those into the to my lab. Um, but then also my lab is, you know, it's also a teaching lab and it's also, it's for my grad students and my grads. And so I'm also trying to learn from them what they want, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of things like microscopy, uh, which, you know, visual arts, it's an art school and art oh. students often are very interested in kind of what kind of images they can make. Um, yeah. So on that side, yeah, we have some nice microscopes and um I'm trying to think what else. We have the GenSpace. Uh, well, we 
in, in sort of our future thinking way, um, we're, we are biosafety level one now, but we're thinking about how to implement some biosafety level two mm-hmm. things like tissue culture. Mm-hmm. And so we did acquire a, um, a hood that can be used for biosafety level two tissue culture. Right. So that's an exciting new development. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so, that, yeah, so that's an interesting point. You've, so you're teaching an art institute, but you've got this kind of molecular biology lab in there. What's the kind of the art, yeah. art students take on like having that accessible to them for their projects? Oh, the art students love it. Yeah. I mean, so we've been we've just started with these kind of bio art studio classes, and also I worked with uh, synthetic biologist uh, Andy Scarpelli, who had just graduated from Northwestern, and we co-taught a class last spring uh, for the Biodesign Challenge, which was just a, a yearly, a new yearly event that's happening in New York, mm-hmm. bring different schools to sort of compete mm-hmm. around. Uh, new ideas and biological design. Um, so we've been teaching these classes and getting people into it, and there's always long wait lists. People are very excited about exploring this intersection. I think that you know, they don't really have any idea what it means yet, but they're excited <laughs> to experiment with new mediums. So what's, uh, so speaking of the biodesign uh, competition, what, what's kind of the diversity of backgrounds of the people you see that are part of that? Oh, well... Oh jeez, that's maybe better to talk to Dan Greshkin yeah. about the founder of that. But um, it's a it's definitely a broad spectrum, you know. Mm-hmm. So there's everything from science and engineering schools, including RP, RPI, my alma mater there, mm-hmm. um, UPenn. Uh, but then there's also art schools like MySchool, SAIC, um, RISD. I think. Oh no, I think RISD didn't participate this last time. But maybe they are in the future. Sorry, I can't speak to the biodesign challenge <laughs> that well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so going back to your talking about kind of transitioning from GenSpace to these other labs and now your own, what do you think the value is of community labs like GenSpace for the community? Oh my God! I mean, I I am always plugging GenSpace because I think <laughs> it's just so phenomenal. I mean, first of all, I wouldn't have a project if it wasn't for GenSpace. I wouldn't have been able to get started on it. So I think for artists, it's an amazing resource to be able to learn hands-on about these new kind of materials and these new issues. And that's where it connects to the broader public, I think, because it means that we can go beyond headlines and really engage hands-on with the materials of biotechnology. For example, I just took a CRISPR workshop at GenSpace last week. You know, so to get to actually go through the process of designing a CRISPR system, for example, I mean, that brings a whole new level of understanding to what's really going into these processes that are being talked about so widely. So I think we can't can't really overestimate the value of that kind of material knowledge. Yeah. Uh, So then both at GenSpace and the other labs you've been at, was there any, what was the level of collaboration that you had for your projects? Um, I mean, really, it was not so much collaboration as mentorship. Okay. So I would say that I've always worked with, you know, some kind of scientific advisor who I could run my, uh, the results of my experiments by and get a sense of, you know, is this, are these good results, bad results, how should I retry the experiment, that kind of thing. So it's more mentorship than collaboration. Yeah, okay. Uh, then you mentioned briefly before you've had a few projects since uh, Stranger Visions that are related to kind of DNA and all this biology stuff. Can you speak mm. to some of those? 
Sure, yeah. So the most recent DNA portrait that I worked on was a portrait of Chelsea Manning. Mm -hmm. So Chelsea Manning uh, was... uh, (sighs) So (laughs) to start with this topic, it's such a large one. Uh, So Chelsea Manning was incarcerated as Private Bradley Manning for the information she made public through WikiLeaks exposing the prevalence of torture and civilian deaths in the Afghanistan and Iraq wars. Um, after sentencing, um, where she was sentenced to 35 years, I think, in in this maximum security military prison, Mm -hmm. uh, she announced her gender transition and became Chelsea Manning. And from that point on, no one has been able to visit her or photograph her due to the harsh sentencing, due to Mm -hmm. the harsh conditions of her incarceration. Mm -hmm. So she's been made completely invisible. And so I worked um, in collaboration or really as on commission from Paper Magazine and then also the Victoria and Albert Museum in London to produce DNA portraits of Chelsea. Mm-hmm. Um, so her lawyer facilitated getting me hair clippings and cheek swabs from which I extracted DNA and then walked through the same process I had in Stranger Visions with mm-hmm. the exception that I left the biological sex parameter out. Okay. And so I produced two portraits to represent Chelsea, one that was uh, so-called neutral, mm-hmm. right, where you would take the algorithmic model of the face and just leave the gender parameter unset, mm-hmm. and then one that was gendered female, where I would use self-identity and y- put in the sort of female gender in the parameterization of the model. And so the digital versions of those portraits accompanied the interview in Paper Magazine. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and then, sorry, I lost my train of thought for a second. And then the 3D printed um, faces, the 3D portraits premiered at the World Economic Forum last January. Cool. Yeah. And then there was also the, uh, the invisible, like, uh, yeah. Exactly, yes. And so right on the tail of um, of sort of, well, what really happened was I was totally swamped with all of the requests from Stranger Visions and uh, felt bombarded and just decided I need to stop working on this project now and, yeah. and shift my attention to something else. And so at that time, I was doing a lot of reading about the history of DNA evidence and how it was uh, incorporated into the legal system and how contested that history really was. I mean, it wasn't at all obvious that DNA evidence was good evidence when it first was being introduced into the courts. And so I was very interested in this kind of contentious history of the DNA fingerprint. Mm-hmm. And um, and then I was also reading a lot about DNA mixtures and how how subjective the interpretation of DNA mixtures is. And keep in mind, when we're talking about forensic evidence, almost everything is a mixture of at least two sources, Mm -hmm. right? Because it's very infrequent that you could have some DNA sample that wouldn't have touched anyone else's DNA in the real world outside of a laboratory setting. So Invisible came from also this history, uh, sort of precedent in uh, art and technology of creating counter-surveillance products projects and products um, and so took inspiration from that kind of line of inquiry and produced so invisible is a working genetic privacy product that's produced by an imaginary biotechnology company called biogen futures 
And it's a set of two sprays, erase and replace. And erase can be used for wiping away DNA traces, while replace can be used for covering them up using the technique of obfuscation. So taking a cue from the electronic privacy realm and applying it to the biological and uh, sort of speculative way of imagining how might we cover up our DNA traces in the future, but also saying how could we cover them up right now if we wanted to. Okay. And so I launched my new company, Biogen Futures, at the industry conference by IT World, and um, there was quite a bit of media response to that as mm -hmm. well. And the uh, one po remaining point I would sort of make about it is that in addition to providing a kind of solution to the question of how we might uh, cover up our DNA traces, how we might become invisible in terms of biological surveillance, the project is also really meant to question the authority of DNA evidence because if our DNA can be hacked or forged or spoofed so easily, does it really deserve this kind of elevated status that we give it? So it's meant to probe a bit at those questions as well. Yeah. So you ended up launching a company for that new product. Are you so are you selling these products then through that company? I did sell them. Yes. Yeah. So okay. they sold. I made sort of a limited edition of them that okay. I sold through the new museum in Newark. Okay. And um and those are sold out. Um yeah. I have a couple uh sort of editions that I've kept for circulating through gallery shows and that kind of thing. But yes, they're out there in the world. Also, <laughs> interestingly, with Invisible, when I first started exhibiting it. Mm -hmm. I would exhibit it um, sort of in the style of a product display, oh, yeah. uh, unprotected, and they would all walk off. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so basically, the audience, the viewers in the gallery would steal every single box yeah. <laughs> from the gallery show. And those are all functional so that products? Was really interesting. Some of them were and some of them weren't. Okay. You know, for gallery shows, sometimes I would just put yeah. sort of the exhibit copy. So the, the I've... It's an ongoing effort, actually, thinking mm -hmm. about the protocol. Uh, so after after the launch of Invisible, I, you know, maybe a, a month or two out, I also posted open source DIY guides for how you could make your own mm -hmm. uh, sprays, and thinking about making it more accessible and thinking about uh, really launching a larger conversation about biological surveillance. Yeah. Um, so I posted those protocols through a new website I developed called Bionymous Me, mm -hmm. which is a blog and it's a community and it's trying to get th these kinds of conversations going. Mm -hmm. So there's other DOI guides there as well. And it's an ongoing process really to try to make the the development of these sprays as DIY as possible. So I just led a workshop in Berlin a few weeks ago where we did the whole thing just using common kitchen products and we're able to do it really cheaply. So extracting DNA using detergent and salt and high proof alcohol, um, mixing that all together. So we, we, every participant in the workshop donated their DNA to the collective replace spray. And then, you know, we were able to parcel that out and share it. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned you're kind of trying to make like a DIY version of these things. So what's, what do you think the value is for people to try to get into DIY bio? Um, I think DIY bio can give people agency over their own sort of biological traces in, in terms of thinking about the surveillance questions. But the bigger value of DIY bio is really 
much like the the value of gen space, I think it's sort of deconstructing the truth discourses around biology. So being able to read the headlines and understand more deeply about what it means, being able to maybe um, counter some of the hype that we tend to see. I mean, I have to say, I think science journalism tends to be some of the worst journalism there is. It's like recycling of press releases, and you see the same sentences appear over and over and over in every media outlet. Mm -hmm. And it's so discouraging to someone who's trying to think critically and and trying to engage the public on these on issues around science and technology just the enormous amount of hype that is um, tends to cloak these uh, really like preliminary scientific papers yeah. <laughs> um, so I think DIY bio and community science labs can really give the public uh, a hands-on understanding of what's really going on sort of behind the scenes uh, that's that's my hope. And that as a community, we can also talk about these things, yeah. you know, that we can talk to each other and, you know, talk about the latest paper that came out and say, well, what does it really mean? Yeah. You know, what is, what is actually, what was the experiment actually that, that took place? Yeah. You know, what really happened? And then what are the implications of that? Yeah, yeah. With that, I noticed that... Uh you're also going to be going to the Biohack the Planet conference a couple. Like, yes, yeah. I'm excited to yeah. be going out to Oakland and seeing my my old friend there, oh, cool. Josiah and Karen Ingram. Yeah. Oh, you know Josiah? Okay. Yes, we met at South by Southwest a couple oh. years ago. Nice, that's awesome. Well, it's interesting because Josiah and I both we did almost these opposite projects because um, yeah. I worked on Stranger Visions, and then Josiah did sort of the reverse of this with Lynn Hirschman, where they sort of took facial recognition data mm. um, and and reverse engineered a person's genome sequence from that. <laughs> so it's really interesting that's the awesome. kind of um, connection there. Yeah. Do you? Uh... What are you going to be talking about at the conference there? Hmm. Haven't <laughs> <laughs> started thinking about um, it. <laughs> what am I going to talk about? Well, the thing is, I haven't. I'm working on a new project, but I haven't made up my mind about whether to talk about it very mm. publicly or yeah. not yet. So mm. I might talk a bit about the. I, I, certainly, I'll talk about you know what I've already spoken to you about. So mm. I'll give some background about Stranger Visions and Invisible and the work with Chelsea Manning. Um, and then I might also talk about some of the new research areas I'm going into, looking at uh, commodification of cells and DNA, sort of uh, a la Henry Lacks, the story of the HeLa cells, oh, yeah. right? So if we were to look at the story of Henry Lacks and HeLa cells as, as a one instance of a much broader practice that's expanding dramatically in recent years, mm -hmm. you know, what is the current state of biological commodification? Um, and and what role does consent play or not play in that system? Yeah. So those are questions that I'm really researching this year. Um, and I might talk about a hack that I did successfully um, um, exploit with some saliva that I purchased. I may or may not discuss that, though. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, strike that from my interview because <laughs> okay. I, I might be trying to sort of keep that under wraps for a bit. Yep. Um, I, yes, I haven't quite decided, but certainly I will be talking about um, the projects that I've discussed with you today. Cool. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited to see that talk as well. There's mm -hmm. lots of really cool speakers that are going to be at that. I'm really keen to see. Oh, yeah, it's going to be good. It's yeah. going to be a fun event. Sure of it. <laughs> awesome. Uh, was there anything else you kind of wanted to bring up and discuss? 
No, I think you, you <laughs> did a very nice job of covering lots of lots of important subjects here. Yeah. So I very much look forward to hearing what you put together. Please yeah, send it to me. Yeah, definitely. We'll share some of the kind of previews before we actually publish anything with you. Um, yeah. What thanks. is the name of the podcast again? Uh, it's just going to be called DIY Bio FM. Uh, which kind of oh, a very cool. high level thing. Yeah, it's focused it's around. Cool. Yeah, it's gonna be focused primarily around the whole DIY bio movement and kind of helping pr to promote it and kind of the ideas behind it. Yeah. So it oh well, on that note, maybe I should <laughs> say one more thing, uh -huh. which is um, so as you said, um, focusing on DIY bio to promote it. So I am always a little bit suspicious of sort of promotional mm -hmm. uh, materials and these kinds of things. And I would say that. As much of a fan as I am of DIY bio, um, I do also have some concerns. And so they're not concerns about security that are terrorism, these kinds of things. Those are not my concerns. My concern is that, um, that DIY bio not sort of fall in the same trap that I think um, DIY electronics has fallen in of uh, sort of black boxing things yeah. so that people have access in a very high level to technology, which is on the one hand wonderful because it's more accessible, but on the other hand, it really obscures the inner workings of what's going on. Mm -hmm. And I think the stakes of biology are so high, we really need to know what it is that we're doing in the most detailed and complex way possible. Mm -hmm. So this is the challenge, I think, that DIY bio and community bio faces of how to make things accessible while still, still really helping people understand how complex they are. Yeah. And so, for example, I have a real problem with um, the the prevalence of speaking about DNA using kind of linguistic and computational metaphors. Mm -hmm. So this is something, it's almost impossible to find a description of DNA that doesn't talk about it as a code or as a library, the blueprint, you know, uh, the book of life, this kind of thing. So I think we really need to try to think more deeply about our learning materials mm -hmm. and think deeply about how we make things accessible so that we're not obscuring really important complexities. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really good point, actually. So that's, yeah, that's a really good thought to keep in mind. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Ongoing thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's definitely going to be very interesting. Like, I think it's been a very interesting kind of the last like, decade or so for kind of the whole biology, biotech in general. So it's been it'll be really cool to see where it goes. Hopefully it continues. I feel like it's right now it's on a positive path with respect to that kind of thing. There's a lot of like more hands-on stuff going on right now. So hopefully it continues down that path uh, going forward. Yeah. So yeah, say. I agree. I mean, it's, I'm happy to be part of this community. Yeah, yeah. So do you consider yourself to be kind of a part of like the biohacker community then in, in general? Sure, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I love hanging out with the biohacker community. Yeah. <laughs> <Awesome>. <laughs> cool. Well, yeah, I'm definitely excited to get to meet you in person uh, next weekend, I guess, in Oakland. It's going be really fun. Okay. Sounds good. Great. Yep. Yeah, look forward to seeing you. Yep. All right. Thanks again for the interview. Uh, I look forward to seeing you next week. Okay. Have a good one. You too. Bye. Bye.